Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. This morning, uh, Lord willing, we're going to work our way through the first uh, 17 verses of this chapter. So Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, uh, this is the word of God. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then they took, then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Before we uh, look at this passage, let's pray. Lord, this is your word uh, breathed out uh, from your mind and heart and mouth. And we ask that you will help us by your spirit to understand it and to live it and to apply it in our lives. Lord, help us to see uh, the significance of your son, Jesus, as revealed here. Help us to be called to hear his voice and help us to see uh, the satisfaction and blessedness that belongs to those who love and who serve and follow him. Lord, for all of those uh, who are traveling, who are away on this long weekend, I pray that you will grant them safety. Uh, But more than physical safety, I pray that wherever they are uh, this morning, you will draw them close to yourself. Uh, Help them to see you, to know you, to love you. I pray for uh, the children uh, in their time uh, with the children's church, for the workers, 
Uh, Lord, I just pray that that will be a time where your spirit uh, is powerfully present, uh, where all those uh, can know and love you. So be with us, we pray. Uh, Open your word now for us. Uh, We ask this not because we deserve it. Uh, We ask this because you are a gracious God who loves to bless. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this is one of those uh, miracles that you're very familiar with, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. If you spend any time in church or in Sunday school, uh, you have doubtless heard uh, about this particular uh, story, uh, this particular miracle. So I want, I do want to treat it. I want to get to it. Um, and I have to admit, last night I was praying and I was saying, Lord, I don't, I don't quite know what to say about this. What do you say about this? Jesus multiplied bread. He multiplied fish. He fed a crowd. Uh, that's great. You know, that's, it's a wonderful display of power, wonderful display of ability. But what do we say about that today? Uh, this is obviously, it's not a text that says, listen, next time there's a church potluck, Dorothy, just get half a dozen buns and we're good to go. You know, so, so how does this apply? What do we do with this? Uh, yes, Jesus can do miracles, but we don't exactly see the sort of multiplication of food uh, normally in our presence. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to handle this passage? I think it's actually very interesting. Uh, I think that there are undercurrents here of significance that go far beyond just the multiplication of the food. God is actually revealing something very special about Jesus uh, in that passage, which goes far beyond the fact that he is powerful and can do things that we can't do. But this passage is also set up by the first nine verses of Luke chapter 9. So there's a reason why these two things go together. I mean, they sort of go together chronologically and also thematically. So we'll start at verse 1 of chapter 9. Jesus calls the 12 together and he gives them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And this is something really amazing about Jesus. And we see this sort of uh, preeminently coming to force in the book of Acts. Jesus not only has power and authority and ability, but he has such great authority, he can actually transfer his authority to other people. He can delegate to other people so they can do the same sorts of things that he does. Now, he can't delegate to them that they can be self-existent. He doesn't make them God. But through his power, he can empower his followers to do the miraculous things that he himself can do. So in the book of Acts, we find out that the, the apostles can heal people, but only in the name and power of Jesus. So that becomes what's significant. Uh, yet for us, you know, we should know that the Lord Jesus, who has all power and authority in the universe, is using his power and authority for the good of his people. He empowers us to serve him. He empowers us by the Spirit of God to have victory in this world over the forces of darkness. He empowers us to help advance the kingdom and to drive out the devil. And so that's an amazing thing. The church for 2,000 years has been sort of the body of Christ in this world, accomplishing God's purposes as the kingdom goes forward. But even more importantly, besides the sort of the exotic ability to, uh, to drive out demons and to cure diseases, notice he also sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And we've seen this many times in Luke's gospel, the way Luke presents uh, Jesus. The accent always falls on the primacy 
of the proclaimed message of the kingdom. So yes, Jesus will drive out demons to show that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus will heal people to show them that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. But none of the miracles are designed to just be raw acts of power to dazzle people or to impress people. Uh, Whatever Jesus does is showing you who he is and what he has come to do. And so the disciples are not just given power and authority over demons and disease. They are also told, yeah, you go out, but you're you're not a healing, traveling carnival act. You do these deeds to show people the power of the kingdom to drive out darkness, that God is on the side of life and health and peace, particularly the physical, gives us a window to see God's priority for the spiritual. Jesus is the healer. He is undoing the curse. He is rolling back the effects of our sin. And one day we look forward to the consummation of the new heavens and new earth where we have the home of righteousness and sin is fully eradicated from God's new universe and the new heavens and new earth. And sin is fully eradicated from the hearts of his people. Where you get rid of sin, you get rid of disease and death. And so you go and you proclaim this message. You teach this message. Now that should actually give us pause because probably for many of us, we would feel like if, you know, if the Lord appeared to us today and said, listen, I'm going to give you power to run around and to heal everyone of their diseases. I would probably think that was pretty great. Uh, Not so much that I could be a help to other people, but because people would be mightily impressed with me. You know, and so I would think, that's wonderful. I can go around, I can heal people. That's pretty cool. That's pretty powerful. But what God has done is he has given absolutely every single one of us the message of the gospel and told us to go and tell other people. And that's what's most important in this verse. That is, when Jesus sends out the twelve, it is not just that they can go heal and cast out demons, as, as interesting as that is. The accent, the most important primary matter, is you go and you tell people about the kingdom. And that's something that we can all do. That God, if his spirit lives inside of us, if our faith really is in Jesus and we know the gospel, that's a job for every single believer throughout all of history. And so as much as you may find it you know, exciting if you were told you can go around healing all kinds of diseases, you should be even more excited for what God has actually done, which has empowered you with the authority to proclaim the kingdom in the name of Jesus. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. So Jesus is giving them power and authority, but he's not making it easy for them. Now, later in the gospel of Luke, Jesus will tell his disciples, Listen, I had told you not to bring these things before, now you can. So this is only for this particular time. Okay, This is a one particular trip with the 12 apostles. These are not sort of ongoing rules for sending out missionaries. Okay, uh, But it's nonetheless here, Jesus is saying, you're going to go out and you're going to have nothing. And you are going to have only the message of the kingdom and my spiritual authority. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is teaching them, you can trust me. I will take care of your needs. You go out, no bread, no lunch, no lunch money. You just go out, hit the road. You're going out in that circumstance if you're going at all as someone with faith. Probably someone who's praying. Not having lunch and not having money to buy lunch probably is a really good motivator for prayer. 
You know, there's nothing that I've never experienced that, frankly. Uh, but here, you don't have anything to eat. You don't have any money to buy any food. You're going out, cast your, casting yourself on the Lord's provision, going to a town where you don't know anyone, and you are just going to have to trust the Lord. And in verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. This is very interesting, actually. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. There's probably a couple of reasons for this. The one would be, if that's your rule, then you can't offend people by upgrading. So you end up in one place, and after a while you go, you know what, Uh, that house over there is a a lot nicer. Or someone comes along and says, you know what, it's great, I really appreciate this message. I heard you're staying down down there. You know what, we've got this set up for you, and you know, we're barbecuing steak tonight, and you know, okay, well appreciate your hospitality, but I'm going over there, you know, and so all of a sudden what you've done is you've set up a a place in a culture of social uh, honor and shame, you've set up a place where you can dishonor your original host, but also it probably keeps you moving around from town to town. So you can't get into a town where the message has been well received and sort of camp out there for a couple years by just moving around from house to house to house. If you only stay at one place, your welcome will wear out and you'll have to move on. Particularly, I have to admit, I never even never even occurred to me until right now. Actually, actually, when I was reading the passage, uh, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Stay in one house and then leave. So probably, considering you don't have a change of clothes, eventually your host says, "Okay, it's time to go." You know, you, you only have one shirt, or maybe you try to find a house where they have laundry or something. I have no idea. But it keeps you moving. It keeps you on the road because every town needs to be reached with a kingdom message of Jesus Christ. He's telling the 12, there's an urgency here. Keep moving, keep teaching, keep preaching. Stay in one place, but then get on the road. Everyone needs to hear the gospel. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, the Jews would sort of symbolically, when they traveled outside of the borders of Israel, when they were in pagan Gentile lands, they would come back to the border of Israel and they would symbolically shake the dust off their feet because the dust was unclean and defiled when you were around those pagan Gentiles. And so this is a common practice. The Jews would come back. When they came back into Israel, they'd shake even the dust off their feet, saying, I repudiate those people. They're unclean. I want nothing to do with them. I'm not bringing sort of their contaminants back into Israel where everything's pure. And so the Jews were very common with this sign and symbol. But what Jesus says here is fascinating. He says, and it's actually very important for what happens with the feeding of the 5,000. He says, if a town in Israel rejects the my message, you treat them as if they're godless. That's what this sign symbolized to the Jews. You shake the dust off your feet. You're basically saying, I have nothing to do with those godless people. They are unclean. And so Jesus here is saying, in Israel, being part of true Israel, the real descendants of Abraham is not about ethnicity. It is about faith in God's Messiah. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, salvation only comes by accepting and receiving the message of the kingdom, the message of Jesus Christ. There is not a single person, no matter their origin or ethnicity or skin color or language, there is not a single person who is saved outside of faith in Jesus Christ. So even if you're a part of the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus is saying, if you reject the message, if you reject me, 
then you reject the Father. You are no better than those people you think are godless. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Just like the parable of the sower that we saw a couple weeks ago in in Luke chapter 8, the previous chapter. One kingdom message scattered all over the place. Some receive it, some uh, nurture it, some persevere and produce a harvest. Many other people reject it. Then you have this very interesting little set of verses, verses 7, 8, and 9 about Herod. Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. So here you see there's an awful lot of confusion about Jesus. And that is exactly the framework that you're supposed to have in mind when Jesus asked the great question in Luke 9:18, who do the crowds say I am? Okay, so you're being introduced to this tension and confusion amongst the people before you get to Jesus asking the disciples about what people think about him. And we're told Herod wants to see him. And Herod says, I beheaded John. Who is this? This is this exact same question the disciples ask when Jesus calms the storm. Who is this? See, everyone is sort of grappling and fumbling towards understanding who Jesus really is. And it's only in Luke 9, 18 and following that Jesus begins to teach his disciples really who he is and what it means to be the Messiah. Lord willing, we'll see this uh, next week. There's an accent here, though. Good things are happening. There are some rejection, but there is confusion and there's also danger. Herod has killed John the Baptist. And now Herod's getting very interested in Jesus. If Jesus and John the Baptist have sort of continuity in their messages, what do you think Herod's response is really going to be to Jesus? So there's sort of this accent, there's this undercurrent of danger here. And then Luke just sort of leaves that hanging and moves on into the feeding of the 5,000. We're told in verse 10, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew. So the disciples have just come back from this mission and they tell Jesus what's going on. Jesus takes them fresh back from the mission and they go to this private place where an enormous crowd hears about it and comes out to Jesus. And the disciples, as it gets late in the day, decide that the best thing for this crowd is for them to go away. Okay. send them away, let them find somewhere to stay, let them go and get food somewhere. It's been a long day. It's going to take them a while to find food and lodging. Send them away. We are in a remote place here. We're in a, we're in a desert. We're in a wilderness here. That's what they're saying. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is constrained by the fact that they have just come back from a journey. And what were they not allowed to bring on their journey? No bread, no bag, no money. And so they just come back and Jesus says, okay, let's go over here. And they go over here, a large crowd gathers, and Jesus says, why don't you feed them? And you can almost sense a bit of exasperation, sarcasm, despair in the disciples when they say, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. And we already know, they're looking at a crowd of 5,000 men, presumably plus women and children, although likely 
this is where things get exaggerated in scripture. So often in our teaching, we say, well, if there was 5,000 men, there was probably an equal number of women and a bunch of kids. So they're talking about 20,000 people. It is highly doubtful that an enormous number of women and children would have been present at, at this sort of thing anyway. So there may be some women and children, but you're dealing with 5,000 men. That's probably a reasonable ballpark for the numbers. But regardless of how you cut it, five loaves and two fish amongst 5,000, amongst 10,000, amongst 20,000, it's pretty irrelevant. There is not nearly enough food here to feed even a small, small portion of the crowd. So the disciples basically say, yeah, we, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. I'm looking around at this enormous crowd, Jesus. Um... Yeah, right. How about we give them something to eat? Well, here's a good answer. Here's a good reason why we don't. Because you just sent us out with no food and no money. You know, sure. How about we go buy groceries for all these people with the money you didn't let us bring? You know, like, what do you want from us? This is crazy. And Jesus says, okay. Well, if you can't feed them, at least organize them for me. Have them sit down into groups of about 50. The disciples do so. Everyone sits down. And Jesus takes the food, looks up to heaven, gives thanks, and breaks it. Then he gives it to the disciples, and the disciples start passing it out to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Okay, that's pretty impressive, right? That Jesus can do this. But is that all that this passage is teaching us? That Jesus just has the power to multiply food. And we've already seen he can he can raise the dead. I mean, I, I don't know much about you know, sort of in terms of the hierarchy of miraculous ability, but raising the dead seems at least as hard as feeding 5,000 people with five loaves. So, you know, it's like, this is why, why this? And we've already seen that Jesus can do anything, right? Well, this partly, I think, is showing the fulfillment of the blessings Luke or Jesus has pronounced that are recorded in Luke chapter 6. So, in Luke 6, we read this in verse 21, 21a. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And here we read, they all ate and were satisfied. It's the same word. In other words, Luke is showing you that when Jesus said, blessed are you who hunger, and here's a hungry crowd, those who hunger will be satisfied. There's the promise, but what's, where's the proof? Where's the proof of the fulfillment? Well, it's partly right here. A hungry crowd, they all eat. Whoever is hungry, Jesus says in Luke 6, blessed are you who are hungry for you will be satisfied. Here, the whole crowd is hungry and all eat and are satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. In other words, this is illustrating the truth of Luke chapter 6. However, there's more to it uh, than that. For one, sort of very, in almost sort of a, a mundane sense, if you talk about miracles being mundane, one thing that this that the disciples are being shown here is you have 12 basketfuls, which is exactly 
the same number, of course, as the 12 apostles that Jesus had sent out at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, or or sorry, at the beginning of Luke chapter 9. And so they go out. Jesus says, listen, you go out, no bread, no bag, no money. And then he says to the disciples, you provide this crowd with something to eat. They say, that's not possible. And Jesus says, okay, I'll show you that it's possible. And then there just happens to be exactly enough leftovers to fill up one full basket for each one of those apostles who didn't think there was enough food for the crowd. And it's sort of like Jesus saying, listen, I sent you out with nothing, but I met your needs. I can meet your needs. In fact, after I feed a whole crowd, you don't have any money, you don't have any bread, you don't have anything, and now you have a basket full of food, one basket full for each of you. I am more than able to meet your needs. Yeah, just, just trust me. So at some sort of mundane level, I think that's an interesting lesson there. But there's something far more significant. Far more significant. And that is, Jesus chooses 12 apostles, obviously, because of the significance with the 12 tribes of Israel. It's not that he just sort of pulls a number out of a hat and decides to go with 12. He chooses 12 apostles to mirror the 12 tribes of Israel. What Jesus is doing in doing so is he is reconstituting the true Israel, the people of God. In other words, who really belongs to the, who really belongs to Israel? Who is a true descendant of Abraham? Only those who have faith in Jesus. that's That's the message of the New Testament. Whether you are ethnically Jewish, or not, is irrelevant. To be a genuine spiritual child of Abraham requires faith in Jesus Christ. That is a non-negotiable teaching of the New Testament. So to be part of God's true people, his true covenant community, requires saving faith in the Messiah. So Jesus chooses 12 apostles to mirror the 12 tribes of Israel to show, in the same way that there were the 12 patriarchs that God started with, Jesus is starting with the 12 apostles, and they're going to be reconstituting a new covenant community. A new community in the new covenant. Now, if that's the case, which it is, and you also see that bolstered in in verse 5, where an Israelite town that rejects Jesus is treated as if they don't belong to Israel. You see that the real Israel is constituted around following Jesus. Now, if that's the case then in some ways the experience of these apostles will go over, we say almost recapitulate or reenact some of the experiences of the nation of Israel. What do you find in Exodus when after Passover, after they are brought out of slavery, after they are brought through the Red Sea, they end up in the wilderness, and before they get to Sinai, what are the people doing? They rejoicing, Hey, this is great. You've brought us out from our slavery. You've brought us out from the place where they were murdering our sons. You have brought us out into a place of liberty. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. Pretty awesome display of power back there, by the way, dividing the Red Sea. That was pretty neat. You know, that that experience alone will carry me for decades and decades of spiritual doubts. No, they're, they're immediately complaining. What are they complaining about? We don't have enough food. Hey, who you're gonna, who's gonna feed us? And the Lord provides manna. The Lord provides bread from heaven. The Lord provides quail. Bread 
and meat provided for the crowd in the remote place, in the desert, in the wilderness. And now Jesus' new community is in a remote place in the wilderness. And their problem is they don't have enough food. And Jesus provides for them meat and bread, just like God had done for Israel. Now, what's fascinating about this is that you move from manna and quail to Mount Sinai. Ten Commandments, Exodus, you know, 20 of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 19. They're camped out at the foot of the mountain. Moses gets all the instructions for the tabernacle, etc., etc. Those are, you know, and you know that because if there's any section in scripture you delight to read again and again it's exodus 20 through 40 right so you're well familiar with that material about the tabernacle instructions and all the rest how long are they at sinai how long are the israelites there it's not just a couple days they're there until the tabernacle is constructed in fact they're at the foot of sinai for a year One full year. And then the Lord moves them out. The Lord moves them out in terms of the narrative. The narrative has them camped at Sinai, Exodus 19. The biblical narrative has them leave Sinai in the book of Numbers, chapter 10. Numbers, chapter 11. The people are complaining about their food. What that's showing you, and they're complaining that they don't have enough, they're sick of manna, they want more meat. In other words, what you're being shown here is that Israel had the exact same complaint before Sinai and the exact same complaint after Sinai. In other words, sitting at Sinai, getting the law, didn't change their heart whatsoever. This is the generation that's going to die in the wilderness. This is the generation that rejects God and his purposes. In other words, one of the the massive lessons here in the Old Testament is, listen, a code of law outside of your heart will not do you any good. So why the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, is so important, it's that the law of God is finally written inside. It's internalized. The external law code might keep you from doing things you want to do because you're afraid of punishment, but it's not going to change who you really are. In the same way that our Canadian law code, you know, for all that it is and isn't, you know, it doesn't make anyone want to obey. It just restricts people and curbs people and frightens people with the fear of punishment into not doing some things they want to do. I mean, just, just ask yourself, what would happen? What would happen if one day, one day in our country, our government said, you know what, on one day, do anything you want, there will be no prosecution. What would happen in one day in our country if that was the case? Well, you'd find out that all the law in the world hasn't changed any one of our hearts. It's the fear of prosecution that curbs people from doing what they want. The external code doesn't change the heart. It never does. It's only when the law code is written on the heart that we see change, internal change leading to external change. So what you find with Sinai is even the Ten Commandments didn't change anyone's heart. Not even a bit. Even the tabernacle and God coming in presence and glory and holiness didn't change anyone's heart, not even a bit. The people have the exact same complaint as soon as they leave Sinai as they had right before they got to Sinai. They haven't changed one bit in that year sitting under the mountain of law. It's only when you sit under the mountain of grace that you begin to experience heart change. Now, 
The people are complaining then in Numbers 11, going over again the same problem in Exodus 16. And this is what Moses says. Moses basically says, here's a paraphrase and I'll read a quote. Moses says, you know what? I don't remember signing up for this. I was looking after a few sheep in the desert. I didn't ask for the bush to start burning. I didn't ask to be called to go back to Egypt. I didn't ask for these people. I was perfectly content. And now you're telling me feed these people. What about their mother? You know, you asked me to pick these people up and carry them out of Egypt. And, and here again, Moses, he's, I mean, he's, he's slightly forgetting he really isn't the one who brought them out of Egypt. You know, he's sort of taking a little bit more credit for this than he probably should be. But he says, you know what? At the end, he says, you know, if I'm going to be responsible for these murmur, murmuring, complaining, grumbling people, you may as well take my life. It would be better for me to die. And one of his problems is this. Numbers 11 13a, so the first half of verse 13, he cries, he says this to God. Where can I get meat for all these people? This is exactly what the disciples say. Where can we get food for all these people? And what happens? God provides meat for them. He also punishes them for their wicked rebellion, but he provides meat. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is reflecting on the provision of manna and how God actually provided them with food. And this is where the significance of the, of the miracle intersects with the themes we have seen so far, particularly in Luke chapter 8. In other words, Luke has very intentionally built and constructed his gospel. When Moses is reflecting on the significance of manna, what does he say is the reason God provided it? He provided you with manna in the wilderness. He said, Moses says this, he humbled you pretty humbling to go out with no resources as the disciples had to do he humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known why to teach you that god can multiply food to teach you that god always has enough resources for you if you just have enough faith to teach you that you know you you can you can spend all of your money and then you're you're broke, but God has extra money in the bank account of heaven to send down to you if you just believe. I mean, what is it? What is the lesson? Why did He humble them, cause them to hunger, and then give them manna? He did this, Moses says, to teach you. So here's the reason. He did this to teach you what. That man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Even in the wilderness, the provision of manna and quail 
was not an exercise in showing how God has enough resources to provide for your physical needs, even though that was part of it. I mean, it was showing that God will take care of you. Yes, it was, but that wasn't the significance. The significance was this. The Lord will meet your needs. The Lord will take care of you so that you learn that what's more important than food and what's more important than physical things, what's more important than material things is the spiritual sustenance that comes in the word of God. In other words, the man of miracle was always designed to get you to think of God and his word and God and his word alone. So when Jesus then multiplies the loaves and feeds the 5,000, it is obviously drawing on these Old Testament categories, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel out in the remote place. Where can we get food? Jesus, the disciples say, where can we get food to feed all these people? Moses says, where can I get food to feed all these people? It's not about the feeding as Moses reflects back on. He says, oh, the Lord provided us with food so we would learn to hear his voice. What has Luke chapter 8 been about? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Luke 8, 8. The seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word retain it and by persevering produce a crop luke 8 18 therefore consider carefully how you listen verse 21 my mother and brothers are those who hear god's word and put it into practice and then luke shows you that by a word jesus calms the storm by a word jesus drives out the legion of demons by a word jesus raises the dead and now you're into chapter 9 and the miracle in chapter 9 teaches you exactly the same point. Hear the word. God taught the children of Israel through the manna, hear my voice. This is your life. What we find here in Luke 9 is that now it's not Israel hearing the word of God. It's the new Israel hearing the word of Jesus. He who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. The end of Luke chapter 7. I will tell you, or sorry, the end of Luke chapter 6. I tell you what he is like. He is like someone who builds a house. They dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. So from Luke 6 through Luke 7 through Luke 8 into Luke 9, there's one Dominant message that's being hammered home through teaching, through miracles, through raising the dead, through rebuking storms, through verbalization. But also, if you're thoughtfully reflecting on all that Jesus is doing in the wilderness, feeding the crowd, and you see that he's obviously bringing to fulfillment those Old Testament themes, then you're supposed to draw the same point. And the point of the Old Testament miracle was to hear the word of God. So the point of the New Testament miracle is the same. Hear the word of God. Where do you hear God's word? Only in Jesus. See, this is not about, oh, look, Jesus can can take five loaves and make them a lot. It's, look, the one who provides bread and and meat in the wilderness is the one whose voice you must hear. Listen to him. Man does not live on the multiplication of loaves. Man lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the point here. It is another way of showing through Old Testament categories, 
You must listen to Jesus. Build your life on him. Let's be very honest. If there is going to be a multiplication of loaves like this this afternoon, we would all show up. But what Jesus is saying here is, yeah, but don't you understand? The only reason I would do that is to teach you to read my word. The only reason I would do that is to teach you to hear my voice. I did that to fill your belly once to learn to trust what comes from heaven. And there is nothing more important than come, that comes from heaven than my words, than my voice. One of the reasons you can tell the crowds are so unspiritual is they're satisfied with the bread, not the bread of life. And so this is a strong call for us. Oh, as, imp- as impressive as the miracle is, see, hear, he who has ears to hear, hear this. Listen to Jesus' words. Hear him and hear him alone. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. May we demonstrate by our hearing of his word that we believe it uh, and build our lives upon it. I'm going to ask our musicians to come uh, and lead us in our closing song.